0: We're delighted to say this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Brewing Folk. Brewing Folk celebrates all the people who visit Verdant Brewing Co. and its taproom. White Rabbit will be collaborating with Verdant this year and we can highly recommend their beers. Find out more at brewingfolk.co or order yourself something to drink from verdantbrewing.co. I'm beginning this week's songbook episode with a book about a band you might not have heard about for a, about five seconds, The Beatles. I do because today's guest has interviewed Paul McCartney so many times he published a book of their conversations called, with elegant ease, Conversations with McCartney. The book I'm recommending today, however, is by a woman known as Poor Sin in the 1960s. And even though Cynthia Lennon's book is called John, it's as much about her and her attempts to navigate her frail position in the eye of the Beatlemania storm as it is about her husband who ran off with Yoko. I read it when I wrote a piece for Record Collector magazine in 2019 about the influence of the Beatles' partners in the mid-1960s, Jane Asher, Patty Boyd and Maureen Starkey. And even though it's not the greatest work of Beatles literature, I found its parallel perspective on the not-always-Fab4 strangely refreshing. Here were four ordinary men trying to make sense of their extraordinary situations, and the women behind them having space to take all the madness in. I'm your host, Jude Rogers, journalist and author of The Sound of Being Human How Music Shapes Our Lives, published by White Rabbit Books. My guest today is an incredibly indulgent one for me, but you're all very lucky to have him. My first proper boss, section editor, and mentor, and luckily for me, he also happens to be one of the best music journalists ever, period, no question. He began his career in the 1970s, which is incredible, really, when he still looks about 35, getting into the Inkies after answering that hugely famous enemy job advert looking for hip young gunslingers to write for the magazine. He went on to write for then-edit Q magazine, became founding editor of Mojo, and reviews editor at Word magazine, where I was lucky to end up being his assistant, and learned from someone whose writing was always funny, full of gorgeous detail, tender but never earnest. He's written lots of books, including on Liverpool and London as musical cities, interviewed all the biggies, Madonna, Bowie several times, Lou Reed, and his descriptions are wonderful. Brett Anderson is tense-limbed like an angle-poised lamp. Amy Winehouse sings with a funky melisma of a jazz veteran and the glottal stops of a mouthy schoolgirl on the Piccadilly line. And Courtney Love's birth certificate should have come with a clause incorporating film rights. My guest today is Paul Denoyer. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hello, Jude. I'm very well, thank you. Good. I know, I'm probably embarrassed you hugely with that long list of your credentials. Um, So, Paul, before we start, let's get the Hip Young gunslinger story out of the way. Tell the listeners about your part in that mad uh, music journalism story. Yeah, in the
1: 1970s, 1976, uh, at which point I was a keen um, NME reader, um, they, they put a little advert in the inside back page, uh, just asking uh, for new writers to come forward. The point about 1976 was that um, the enemy was feeling its age. You know, so it had been going uh, for decades and decades, and its most recent manifestation was a kind of uh, hippie. It had been a pop newspaper, which became a West Coast hippie paper, and. By 1976, they were obviously aware that um, punk was going on in London, and the paper needed to reflect that with um, some fresh blood on the on the staff. Um, so everybody was invited to send in a sample review, and um, I got out a piece of paper and a biro <laughs> and uh, sent in a review of uh, Ian Jury's band at that time, Kilburn and the High Roads, who I loved. And... Um, I think about a 1,000 people sent in these um, sample reviews and 10 or 12 of us were invited in. Um, and it became clear that what they wanted was um, was a writer or writers who in themselves embodied punk. I mean, I was well aware of punk. I'd been to several Pistols gigs and I, I knew I was thoroughly abreast of all that and I loved it, but I wasn't myself a punk Um uh, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't anybody's idea of a gunslinger either, <laughs> which I, I always thought that was a slightly absurd thing. Um, it turned out in the interview, what they did want was very aggressive people, which isn't me. Um, <laughs> and they ended up recruiting uh, two people, Tony Parsons and Julie Birchall, who were great, who were just perfect for that role. They did say to me, however, uh, well, we like... Um, potentially like what you do so keep in touch and um you you know you might get some freelance work from us i kept sending them uh, live reviews which they steadfastly ignored and it was very discouraging (laughs) um what i didn't know at that point was just how low the standard of manners is within the music press and the media in general (laughs) people just ignore you um And they feel no compunction about uh, ignoring you. But I persevered anyway. And in the end, they just kind of gave up ignoring me and said, oh, all right, then. And they they sent me off to do live reviews, um, either in London, where I was living at that point, or Liverpool, where I went home to most weekends. And I built up from there. And bit by bit, they'd send me off to do interviews. And then they put me on the staff by the end of the 70s.
0: The music press was something that was important to you, Growing up, you know, I remember you telling me before about, you know, the piles of magazines you used to see and the newsagents. Maybe not Mer- Mersey because you're not, you know, much younger than that. But kind of the, 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 the that was your access point to this world because, you know, you yeah, weren't Actually, really- I do
1: remember Mersey Beat. I was I was a bit too young to have, uh, to have read it or to have um, had the money to buy it. But growing up in Liverpool in uh, the 60s, uh, you would go into the sweet shop uh, and they would have a stack of Mersey beats on the uh, on the counter there, uh, relaying the the latest exploits of um, the Beatles or Silla Black or Jerry and the Pacemakers or whoever it was so uh, I, so I guess from an early age, I did see that there was this connection between the pop music that I loved and the printed word. Um, the printed word was another manifestation of pop music, you know, that was available to you, and um, so that was the back of my mind when I first started picking up uh, the Melody Maker and Sounds, and um, and mostly the Enemy at the start of the seventies.
0: And growing up as a little kid with all that happening in your city, I can't imagine what that must have been like.
1: It was really, it was really exciting. Um, that was the first pop music that I ever. Listen to. I mean, I, I heard pop music before that. There was, you know, uh, Adam Faith and Cliff Richard and people like that, I suppose. Must have been on the wireless. Um, but I, I didn't pay any attention. It wasn't until the Beatles songs um, started to pop up, 60, 63, really. Um, and of course, it was great pop music. Obviously, it was great pop music. But for me, at the age of, I was about seven years old or something. Mm-hmm. It was, it was an ideal entry point because those early songs, Love Me Do, Please Please Me, From Me To You, they were kind of only a step on from nursery rhymes. Um, even though, as we now understand, there's great harmonic sophistication involved in those songs. Mm-hmm. They're not actually as simple as they sound. But they were very easy songs for a young child to get into. And, um, and I think that really made my relationship with the Beatles music um as as deep as it became because it followed my own growing up period from from being a very being a small child listening to these simple nursery like songs going through the uh, the moody uh, mysterious um, workings of psychedelia and then the kind of fatigue and disillusionment and apprehension about adult life that um, mm. they were signing off on, you know, around the time of Let It Be, when I was um, 13 or 14, just on the brink of becoming an adult myself, you know. So um, my own growing up, irrelevant as it is to anybody else, but it actually totally reflected the trajectory of the Beatles' own development.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously you then go on to become a music journalist, interview McCartney many times and get to know him you know, pretty well as um, his tour programme writer, you know, various things. Tell me about the first time you interviewed him and how your relationship with McCartney developed from then on.
1: Yeah, it was in 1979 and he was um, playing what would turn out to be his last tour with uh, Wings, the band he formed uh, after the Beatles. And uh, I was in the office of the NME, Um and they said, uh, oh, would you want to go uh, up to Liverpool, you know, get your train for, paid for, go up and see your mum and dad. And I was always up for that. They said, yeah, McCartney's doing a little press conference um, uh, after this gig uh, in Liverpool. Um, and also, we'd like you to interview Linda. She doesn't do interviews very much. And in fact, relations between Paul and uh, the music press, particularly the NME, were at an all-time low. I don't know whose idea it was to get Linda to do an interview, but it uh, it was some kind of peace offering, I suppose. So I went, I interviewed her before the gig. She was lovely. We really got on very well. The the odd thing is that, you know, seldom have two people been so terrified of each other as me meeting Linda. I was terrified (laughs) because it was almost my first interview and she was really famous. She was terrified because she was just terrified of the music press. had given her a very hard time, and the world in general had given her a very tough time through the seventies, mm. and I, I felt a great deal of um, sympathy for her, really. Um, and so we both we sat down, <laughs> each of us trying to reassure the other one that we weren't here to eat them alive in any way and, um,
0: <laughs> yeah and he he wasn't thought of as very cool at all at the moment and you know this is McCartney 2 I'm guessing 79 which is now held up as this great you know McCartney record it was
1: um it was the time of uh, it was even worse than that it was uh, he just put out an album called Back to the Egg which has got, oh, some, right. oh, wow. got <laughs> some great tracks on it but it's a, it's a bad album title uh it had bad artwork uh it had a few terrible tracks as well but this is is why the enemy sent me because I was the most junior no one of any standing within the enemy hierarchy could be bothered to go and meet Paul McCartney they didn't um, who would at that point it was just he was really um, he was so looked down upon anyway I was glad of the work and I'm so glad I did it anyway a few (laughs) years later I did another interview with him just after we started up Q magazine um, uh, and um, Part of the point of Q magazine or part of its um, ethos was that we declare a ceasefire. There is no longer a war between the music press and, um, and the old rock um, hierarchy. Um, we've got nothing against them. Um, we're just, you know, it's, we're, they're not war criminals. We just want to get their story. Uh, So that was our approach to people like Paul McCartney. And, of course, people like Paul McCartney were very glad of this because they welcomed the the chance to have an hour or two of um, friendly, grown-up conversation, I guess. McCartney and I seemed to get on quite well. And after that, he started commissioning me to do um, tour programmes and press kits and all sorts of things for him. So um, the relationship uh, developed from there.
0: Are there any, you know... And obviously, this podcast is going out to the big wide world, although I'm pretending it's not. Are there any McCartney stories that you are you you could reveal <laughs> that are? Um, I, I think I might know some of them. I know aren't repeatable, but um, that uh, you know, surprising or may reveal a side to him that we wouldn't expect of him. The, the, the,
1: the best thing about it, the, the sharpest memory I have, isn't from the interviews. It's when he would just be rehearsing his band, and I would be the solitary spectator just right. me watching and i'd be sitting three or four feet away from him as he sat his pi- at his piano and played um you know hey jude or fool on the hill or something and he's looking at me the whole time because i am standing in for the stadium audience that he's going to be playing this to in a in a month's time and but just by his feet there'd be that battered old Hofner uh, Hoffner bass guitar um with the old uh, Beatles set list. And it was um that, that that they were the most magical um experiences of the whole um, of the whole process, I think, just being being the single member of Paul McCartney's <laughs> audience.
0: Yeah, I've been watching Get Back recently, just those moments when Ringo is just there, you know, gazing at him and saying, you know, I could just watch you play all day you know you were there a few other questions about your writing before we get on to um the questions I ask everybody um I mentioned um your Amy Winehouse interview which I remember really vividly from the early days of Word magazine it was just when I started writing for you um I remember when you 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 uh invited me to come for a drink to talk about possibly writing (laughs) for the magazine I still remember that day so well I remember I had Really awful sandals, which fell apart on the way. We were meeting at a very fancy club in West London. It was classic, classic, dude. Um, um, but that interview, with Amy Winehouse, you recaptured really something about her. Reading back, you know, the seeds of what might, or what did happen. You could kind of see them there in that interview. How did you find, you know, meeting her? You know, you know, you've meet, you've interviewed so many women who are, you know, hugely. Um, you know who who become hugely famous or are hugely famous like you know you interviewed madonna amy Winehouse was on the of fame when you interviewed her
1: yeah um i did have a i did have a kind of um specialism i think with interviewing women um i i did interview loads and loads of uh, the f- the female uh stars of the time um Chrissy Hynde, even the stars of the previous era, Dusty Springfield, Scylla uh, Black, mm. which were really great experiences for me, because meeting the people who were famous when you yourself were a child is of a, mm. diff- is, it's, it's of a different order of uh, magnitude to meeting people Definitely. who have become famous when you are you're an adult. You know, you see them through a, a different kind of lens. I think. Um, Amy was um she was very young and I was <laughs> I was pretty old by then it was um there was a big difference in our in our age but um she just made her first album which was um it was remarkable it was one of the best new things that um I'd heard around that time uh, little did I know that she was yet to make another album It was going to be even better um she was on this um uh, upward curve um, in terms of her musical achievement, which made the the early curtailing of that all the more all the more uh, tragic. The day that I met her, she was um, she was very tense, uh, but she was a tense person when she was in a professional setting. There were already lots of um, stories uh, emanating from the uh, studio, from the sessions that she'd had. Um, she was very t- determined. You know, she had a she had a sound in her in her head, um, which was her sound and nobody else's, and it made it all the harder for the people in the studio to understand what it was she wanted because it wasn't anything that already existed. There was no mm. there was no template for what Amy Winehouse wanted to do, you know. Um. So she had a reputation for being a bit tricky, uh, a bit uh, a bit difficult. And I went in. That didn't particularly bother me, you know. I am a battle scarred veteran of numerous Van Morrison interviews and Lou Reed all <laughs> that. So Difficult people never particularly um, worried me too much. In the end, she wasn't difficult. She was nervous. Um, she was distracted. She had uh, she had so much going on in their mind. As far as I understood, it was just music. I remember she kept breaking off the conversation to take um, uh, a notebook and a pen out of her bag and scribbled down some ideas because her mind was going at such a velocity that anything she was saying uh, was liable to spark off some idea for a lyric or something or some thought that she felt she would have to revisit. Um, So I did find her tense but not hostile. That's That's the point, I suppose. She became very, you know, she warmed up. She was very sweet, actually, a very sweet young girl. She was worried about her career, I think. Um, mm. And she was kind of telling herself off for being so uptight and uh, telling herself to relax. Uh, Amy, Amy, chill the fuck out, she says to herself. It was mm-hmm. quite touching. But we got on fine, then we walked around Camden to do pictures and all of that. So it was a lovely day. Um, but also by then, we were in a tapas bar actually in Parkway and uh, she was a regular there. And it was packed. And not one person turned her head to look at her. She was so obscure at that point, you know, all of that mm. tabloid infamy. It was still a few mm. months ahead. It was probably mm. one of her last times uh, for having an anonymous uh, tapas uh, mm. time in Camden Town.
0: Yeah, which she would have loved, yeah. I did one interview with her late in tw- 2006, um and things were kicking, you know, really kicking off after Black, Back to Black had come out the month before. She was in the, in a taxi with her best friend having just done a photo shoot at her old school where she set the fire alarms off for a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and she was yeah, she was like, I'm going home for a bath. Oh, I, I And I've got the tape of it here somewhere. And it's really recorded when I was in the word office on the phone. And she was hilarious and um, living in Muswell Hill where I was and saying, oh, I'll see you in Sainsbury's, you know, and just incredible thinking of, you know, what she became. Um, oh, finally, um, what do you think great music journalism needs? There's a question for you.
1: <laughs> I, I always think um, some, if, if a writer can achieve a conversational tone of voice, um, then they're pretty much um, home and dry. Um, you need to have cu- uh, curiosity. Um... It's easy to respond to writing when you feel that the writer is sharing something that they've just recently found out and been intrigued by, as opposed to somebody who's simply delivering a lecture to you, Mm -hmm. um, which is, of course, the older rock music gets and the older (laughs) rock music writers become. It's a a trap um, because people are um, often... Conferring upon you the benefits of the thirty or forty or fifty years of uh, memory and experience, and um, that doesn't necessarily make for great rice. I don't think. Mm-hmm. I'd rather get to, I'd rather get a seventeen year old um, uh, kid who's uh, just has the first flush of excitement about them at learning these things for the first time, and still unable to quite process the excitement of getting backstage at a gig or whatever the thing is. You know, um, so. I, I I love all that. There's some, it's some to, there's some element of personality in it, and um, the personality of the writer at the same time shouldn't be so overbearing as to um, create the impression that they are um, um, making you feel privileged by the by the company.
0: Yeah, that gives kind of, an insight into how you were, were an editor as well. You know, back in the word days. When I rem- I still thank you for the day that you gave you, you said, "Right, Jude, this month you're going to be reviewing <laughs> Paul Simon's Solar Back Catalog." <laughs> I was 25. I think I'd been in the office for two months. I was like, I- but I only know some songs by him, and you're like, that's why I'm giving it to you because I don't want to I remember you said, I don't want you know to read somebody who's written about this millions of times, and uh, that is a rarity in um in lots of editors today, I think, actually. But uh, there you go. Um, I should say to everybody as well, in the word office, Paul was this quiet, peaceful rock in the corner of the office with Mark Ellen. Rabbiting his wonderful stories. Um, Andrew Harrison tapping away on the keyboard, you know, um, and every now and then Paul would open his mouth and we'd all listen because it was always brilliant and very funny. (laughs) Right. On to the questions. Um, So, Paul, who was the first music act or artist that you loved?
1: Um, well, as uh, as mentioned before, it would have been it would have been the Beatles. It might have been "Love Me Do." It was certainly "Please Please Me" from "Me to You." That first run of Beatles singles, um, um, as well as all the other pop um, hits of that day, which at that point, nineteen sixty three, nearly always came from Liverpool, from my hometown. As it yeah. uh, as it turned out, it was a unique. It was a very unique moment, and I feel very lucky to have been uh, in Liverpool at that point, and And um, especially as the, the other thing, which. Uh, it probably wouldn't interest you as much but it was the it was the year that bill shankley had uh, um made his mark with with liverpool football club um oh yeah and having brought them up from the second division um they were suddenly taking over the top division the first division and uh, were about to go into europe they, they, their, their fortunes were absolutely turned around and uh, from being a nothing team uh, they became the you know the most powerful Team. This happens simultaneously with the wow. Beatles taking off and um, Mersey Beats and all of that, and, um, and the Anfield crowd adopting "You'll Never Walk Alone." That never really left me either. So, I mean, that that actually seeing seeing the cops singing "You'll Never Walk Alone" or singing along to Jerry singing "You'll Never Walk Alone," that would have been the, probably the first transcendental, transcendent uh, musical moment that I recall. Yeah, wow, amazing.
0: Who was the um, first music writer you loved?
1: Uh, Music writers, um, people, um, other kids uh, would bring in music uh, papers sometimes into school. And because we were young, um, the the popular ones were the Record Mirror and the Disc and Music Echo. The other ones, uh, like the Melody Maker and Enemy, were still a bit... um, well particularly the melody, the melody maker was quite a grown up thing slightly forbidding quite serious but um disk and music echo had color pictures which um which most of them didn't so i picked that up and looked at it i was very interested in the uh, small faces they became my kind of adopted band it was too obvious to say you liked the beatles in the late 60s mm-hmm. too obvious to say you liked the rolling stones i really picked up on small faces i absolutely adored them and um I would always look at the music papers uh, to see if there was anything about um, Steve Marriott and the small faces. I always remember uh, a writer called Penny Valentine. She would do the singles, and there'd be a little um, um, photograph of her. And uh, she looked um, you know, me. Would never be in um, anywhere anywhere near swinging London. She seemed to epitomise this the glamour of swinging London. You know, she was a fabulous looking. Uh, young woman with long blonde hair, and this name alone, Penny Valentine, which seemed so purely uh, Carnaby Street. And uh, it's very funny that years later, I actually realised Penny Valentine was her real name. It, seemed, uh, <laughs> it just seemed too good to be true, you know. See also uh, Annie Nightingale, and um, David Bowie had a girlfriend at that time called Hermione Farthingale, which in fact wasn't her real name at all. But Penny Valentine, her real name. She was a great writer, and she wrote about the singles. So it was something that I could uh, relate to because you would hear those singles on the radio. My my mum would have her transistor on in the kitchen playing Radio Caroline, which broadcast from the um, waters off the Isle of Man. So we got a good signal, and that was where I listened to all that pop music of the sixties on my mum's um, transistor on the radio. And so again, you know, the link between the printed word and the sounds you were hearing was an immediate one for me and um that's where it kicked off the NME revamped itself in 71 or so had a change of format they brought in a whole load of new writers um mostly from the underground press like um the one who stuck in my mind was charles sean murray and i i really kind of he, he was such a clear writer he was a, a bit of a show-off but entertainingly so and um when I first started writing myself, I would do painfully amateurish impressions. I think of Charles Shaw Murray. Um, if I look back at all the things now, I could I cringe a I'm just so obviously trying to imitate Charles Shaw Murray, and it's. But you've got to start somewhere, you know, and you've got to. Oh,
0: absolutely. Mostly, you I know, think I...
1: musicians always tell you this, don't you? Don't they? You know, they, Paul McCartney will say this. I I, I said, I, at first, I just tried to be Little Richard or Ray Charles or something, and from mm. there. You realise how bad you are at doing Ray Charles and Little Richard. You, you <laughs> gradually uncover something within yourself. You know, it's, uh, anyway, at a far, far humbler level than Paul McCartney. I was finding ways to write that were more attuned to uh, to myself than to Charlie. As I know, I still feel a bit starstruck when I call him Charlie. But um, <laughs> I was I was in awe of him uh, for a long time when I first started writing.
0: How about the first music book that you loved?
1: The first music book. That I read, um, it was, uh, it was Hunter, Hunter Davis did that biography of the, uh, the Beatles um, in 1968 or so. And I just found it in, in the local library. And um, I was eager for it to devour any kind of information about the Beatles I could find. And to get a whole book about them was um, an amazing discovery. Um, I love that. Uh, the first music book that I bought, because I now felt sufficiently... Sufficiently um, abreast of popular music to want to read uh, uh, a book about it. Was, uh, it was by Nick Cohn, and the title alone just just leapt out at me. It's called A Wop Bop A Lubop A Lop Bamboom, which is, of course, uh, the refrain from a Little Richard song. Great title, had a great cover with Elvis and in a collage with other rock people. And I must have picked it up in the shop and just Browse through it. Nick Cohn has got a really vivid style, really punchy. Um you know, he really hits you right between the eyes, uh, the way that he writes. And I gradually came to the conclusion that I didn't actually agree with this book. <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed it, and it gave me a good grounding in rock, rock had only been going, actually, in the in the in the rock and roll Elvis Presley sense of the term. It'd only been going for about 12 years or something there wasn't that much history to catch up on but that Nick Cohn book helped me to do that um Mm -hmm. and it it sent me off in exploring other directions of things that uh, I might find in junk shops you you could always buy old LPs in junk shops Um, in Liverpool you could always get an old Chuck Berry LP or something for um 12 pence or something, you know, so I loved doing that when I had a record player, and um, Nick Combe was a great guide to all of that.
0: Um, mm. And that's, um, so that is and that is obviously the book, you know, we're going to dig into a little bit today, so yeah. um, it was written in 69, yeah. um, the blurb on the copy that I've got here, which is from the 90s, is the first attempt to write a serious book on pop and rock, making it a book that signalled the birth of rock criticism. Um, there is, the Nick Cohn um, wrote a preface to the twenty six Vintage Classics edition as well, in which he says, I wasn't much of a critic. My writing, when it was good, lived off characters, sounds, atmospheres and snapshot impressions. Um, you know, we should say he wrote it when he was 22. <laughs> um, and although some of its language is, you know, inevitably and understandably dated, you know, it doesn't pass several tests regarding sexist and racist descriptions. Mm. Its eagerness does it understand this mad thing called rock and roll, it's not diluted at all. You know, it leaps from Bill Haley to the Twist to Specter Sound to Bob Dylan to PJ Proby to the Band of Love with this, you know, restless enthusiasm. And you've still got your first copy as well, haven't you?
1: Yeah, mine I think must be a um, second edition from nineteen seventy-two right. or something. Um, um,
0: a great cover as well.
1: It is a great. It is a great cover. Yeah, um, he, he had uh, he had two other claims to fame. I later discovered. Um, Apart from small faces, I'd always loved the Who. Growing up, I always had this thing about London bands. funnily enough, up in Liverpool, um, but uh, Nick Cohn was a great pinball enthusiast, and he was a friend of Pete Townsend of the Who. Anyway, Pete Townsend wrote "Pinball Wizard" about Nick Cohn, which is a pretty, oh, really? which is a pretty, <laughs> which is a pretty cool claim to fame. I always think. And then uh, a couple of years later, in the seventies, um, Nick Cohn was writing uh, for magazines in America. And uh, he'd heard about a clique, kind of clique of uh, young Italian American kids over in Brooklyn who used to dress up uh, and go disco dancing. And he wrote a really fantastic profile of uh, this little uh, gang of um, teenage kids. Anyway, this article was turned into uh, the film Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. And it's all really, I mean, the power of the piece is just in Nick Code's powers of observation. Um, actually, and there's not much of a story to it. Um, you know, young Tony Water's name um, wears his best shirt and then um, gets into a bit of a fight and then dances the uh, um, <laughs> uh, dances, uh, around. The, it's not much of a story, to be honest, but um, the atmosphere in Nick Code's piece was clearly enough to get the filmmakers uh, excited and, uh, and he made a pretty good, pretty good film out of it all. Anyway, back to, back to his book. Um, it's got that same uh, shrewd observation going through it, these pithy summaries. And um, when he's excited by something, he conveys that excitement in a, in a really uh, infectious way. The trouble with the book, as I later came to realise, was that even at the age of 22, he was already disillusioned. Mm. I mean, I'm still kind of sickened by how young he was, you know, because... <laughs> I mean, I didn't get going at all until I was twenty-three, and even then, I was absolutely useless. But he—I was twenty-five. God, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, that 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 really does uh, appall me because um, I've always felt <laughs> I was so slow to get started. You know, because I've always I always compare myself with um, um, Nick Cone, My career with Nick Cohen's career. But he was already disillusioned, and the tone of the book is elegiac. It's—I um, mean, the odd, the funny thing about him is that. You know, Beatles fans often div- you know how Beatles fans, um, they often used to divide themselves into red album people or blue album people based on those two compilations. I mean I right. love, obviously I love both, but I've got a speaking sympathy for red album Beatles, those early pure pop things. Mm. Uh, and I'm certainly not one of the one of the people who kind of looks down on the early pop music because they because it's not as deep or as um I am the walrus or whatever. Uh, I would love all that stuff as well, but I love the early... Nick Code is quite clear where he stands. Red album Beatles, great. Blue album Beatles, rubbish. The whole of (laughs) of rock music took a disastrous wrong turning uh, when the Beatles brought out Sgt Pepper because it convinced an entire generation of, uh, of musicians and upcoming generations of musicians, it convinced them they were capable of producing great art. And rock and roll is all should all be about sex, excitement, the moment. Um, mm. So Nick Cohn can be rhapsodic about um, uh, Little Richard, fifties rock and roll, pure, simple, violent. Uh, Phil Spector, uh, Phil Spector music, magnificent, uh, powerful, again violent. Um, early Beatles songs, cute. Lovable, lovable. Um, but after that, prog rock, psychedelia is coming in. It's all turning soggy, self-indulgent, um, um, verbose. The energy is is ebbing out of it. That's the thing. The, he thinks um, uh, uh, Sgt. Pepper is the point at which the Beatles are losing energy. And rock mm. around them was similarly losing energy. I think I, I even then I thought... He's missing the point, really. Um, rock was certainly changing its character, but what was happening in pop was pop was just coming to the end of one cycle.
0: Yeah.
1: At that point, I was I, I was falling in love with um, T Rex. Uh, I wasn't so interested in I wasn't just in the basic rollers or the Osmonds and all of that stuff, but I could see that this was pop music and it was beginning yeah. a new cycle. If I'd been a you know a fifteen year old, um, you know, I probably would have loved a lot of that stuff. I was just but I was 18, I was 19. I and I loved um Mark Boland, because that was a bit more he was he was more he was more versed in the blues, actually, Mark Boland. Um and, and Tolkien and all kinds of clever stuff. But it <laughs> was just pop music. It was pop music was was being born again, and it turned into glam rock and it it, it gave birth really to punk rock. Um uh, so Nick had kind of signed off a little too uh, early, I think. And that's the besetting scene of all um well, all rock writers are liable to commit that sin, you know. Nothing is as good as what excited us when we were young.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. You have people who write, you know, books from the positions of their thirties and forties, and they say, "Oh, you know, pop isn't what it used to be." And you yeah. think, yes, yeah, because you're not have- you haven't got the first spark of things. and something I ward against a lot. But I also have this theory that when you are, you know, twenty-two, like Nick Cohn was, you know, you're more nostalgic for your youth in quote marks, then then you maybe are when you're a bit older. You know, um, think of all the great songs that have been written by incredibly young people, you know, about being sad that their youth is passing, you know, As Tears Go By has the elements of that. And there's obviously these days, you know, written when Jackson Brown was 17 (laughs) or something. You know, you hear um, Marianne Faithful singing As Tears Go By, you know, when she is still a teenager. And there's this longing for childhood in it, you know. and It's as moving as when you hear, when she she covered it a couple of years ago, you know, with her much older voice, you know, with all the things that she has been through in her life. Um, You know, there's a song by Adele called When We Were Young off 25. It's like, listen, love, (laughs) you wait till you're 44. (laughs) I think you're more nostalgic about your youth when you are relatively young, maybe because, you know, a year feels like it lasts like 10 years, whereas when you get older... Some yeah, there's a great um, there's
1: a great Bruce Springsteen song, uh, Racing in the Street off um
0: oh, down, yeah. on the edge
1: of town. And uh, that's he that's Springsteen at the cusp of being. He ca- he can't be the um he, he's, he can't play the young rocker anymore because he's because you know, life is just life is just moving on and, and so he stri- he is striking this elegiac note. Uh, there's a riff mm. going through that song, which is taken from um uh, one of the old Spectre singles. Uh, to do Ron Ron or something um and it, it's that point at which he's got to kind of park the past and um face up to grown-up life which, which of course he went on to do very uh with uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous
0: oh success. he does um it's summers here and the time is right isn't it yeah and it's dancing like dancing in the street as well yeah, yeah kind of so there's a lot of little elements in that yeah, yeah it's um but yeah, it's 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 um it's very enjoyable, you know, whatever the problems with the, a wop op loop up there are, you know, reading his theories. You know, he argues the economic conditions of the 50s set the stage for pop, you know, which is something we have read lots about these days. You know, um, obviously John Savage's brilliant book, Teenage on Teenagers, looking at what happened before that as well. Oh, yeah. You know, teenagers cool. had their money for the first time. Um, before that, they had nothing of their own to spend it on. And then they have pop. Um, but I also love how Nick Conan he does... You know, say that there are people who are not necessarily very young who are enabling this movement. You know, he talks about Bill Haley, chubby and baby faced almost 30, married a father of five children. <laughs> <laughs> you know, can you imagine? Um, but he's good at capturing these, you know, sort of heroic figures of pop as well, you know, the way the way he talks about Elvis. He is where Pop begins and ends. Very young, private, unshareable, a true original. You know, obviously, you know, things came before Elvis, you know, he was influenced by, you know, women as well, like um, Big Mom Thornton, Sister Rosetta Tharpe, but he was this, you know, new creation in terms of um, a white man capturing, I don't know, the sort of magic about him and the charisma that went into that mix. You know, yeah. he was somebody, he says what, you know, white boys wanted to be and girls wanted to be with. Yeah. Um but yeah, he writes brilliantly about lots of people. Cliff Richard. This is a brilliant bit. He's a magic slate, a pad on which almost anyone could scrawl their fantasies and rub them out and try again. <laughs> um, and he also writes about, um, you know, people who have been talked about in, you know, much more involved ways in later years. He talks about Jimmy Savile and Phil Spector in ways which acknowledge their, well, their essential oddness, really you know, he says about Phil Spector, when you bought Phil Spector records, you were buying no throwaways, but huge frantic outpourings of soft spite and paranoid rage and frustration and visioned apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it seems that the characters in um, pop music are as important as the songs they sing to Nick Cohn.
1: Yeah, he did um, He did a follow-up book, actually, just after the edition of um, A Whop-Up Blue Bop that I got. He teamed up with... Um, an artist called Guy Pielert, uh, to produce a kind of coffee table book called Rock Dreams. Guy Peelert, which I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing, but he was very famous as the artist who did the cover of Diamond Dogs, the David Bowie um, album. Uh. He also did, I think, It's uh, Only Rock and Roll by the Stones. His speciality was to do a kind of montage of um, photographic material with um, painted um, um, elements as well, and um, he and Nick Cohn produced an entire book of uh, their rock dreams, which was that mythological side of Nick Cohn's interests. It, was, um, it wasn't it was so much a case of chin-stroking critics deciding whether such and such a record is better than such and such a record. It's, um, <laughs> it's which artists embody some kind of image to such a powerful degree that uh, it overrides any question of the validity or quality of their music. They're just... They've got the star quality because they just send the people's imaginations reeling. and um, That's what he did mm. in that book, uh, Rock Dreams, which is also uh, really well, well worth seeking out.
0: I've just looked it up and it's $268 hardcover wow. <laughs> and uh, $160 in paperback from a, you know, the um, bigger seller of books in the UK. You know, just because that was the first thing that came up on my phone. Um, you know, obviously he's in these pieces as well. You know, do you think writers should put themselves into pieces of journalism? You know, you always did su- su- very subtly, you know, if it served the story, you know, you when you interview Bowie, one of the times that you interviewed David Bowie, you know, you mention, you know, kind of um the first gig you went to see of his and, you know, that relationship, but it never overwhelms it
1: yeah well it does have to be done um with with some subtlety um because you you do have to as a as a journalist you do have to begin with the you know with the humble recognition that people are not buying this um magazine um to, to read about you they've, they've, they you know they've, they've they, they want to read about the artists that you're covering I think uh, I think you've just got to take that as read. People very seldom notice bylines on a piece. I mean, we do because we're in that line of trade, but most people don't, I find. Um, my, my early years were spent on the enemy, and the enemy did introduce a kind of idea of personality journalism, which they'd carried over from probably from the new journalism of America, uh, Tom Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson and people like that, uh, Lester Bangs. Um, Some people imitated it well and lots of people imitated it very, very badly. Um, My my own personal preference was just trying to keep myself out of it completely. Um, I, I didn't see myself as any kind of gunslinger. I didn't see myself as any kind of personality writer um so I, I i adopted a very low profile in most but i do think a lot of the enemy writing became um over personalized and i think the, the, a lot of the readers were responding badly to it at that point in the in the um in the 1980s when we started we started on q magazine in the late 80s and we did make a conscious uh, effort to try and Probably go to the opposite end of the spectrum. When um, it, we well, it Q magazine, we actually banned people from using the first person singular, mm. just to try and curtail that um, tendency towards over over indulgence. Well, mm. I started at Mojo a few years later. I wanted to sort of correct that a bit and go back towards the the personal element that um, had been there in the NME. It's just a case of striking a balance, really. I suppose you yeah. know you don't want things to be. As we go into the age of AI, you do want some, <laughs> <laughs> you do want yeah. some hint that there was a human being behind this, uh, an individual human being behind this thing that you're reading.
0: Yeah, I like the idea. Somebody's invested in a record, or has a connection with it, and wants just wants to share it with you. Whether that's you know yes. that doesn't have to yes, sure. come from a a long passage of first person, you know, yeah. writing. Yeah. Um, you know, there are you know, this is a very boy-heavy book. Obviously, you know, there are some women. Aretha Franklin gets in. Tina Turner. <laughs> They're also um. Sexualized quite a lot Tina Turner's truly cosmic ass gets about as much attention as a voice. you know I get that her you know amazing physical presence is part of her act, but still um which women would you like to read him on? I
1: would personally have done a lot more about Julie Driscoll, who's another um obsession of mine in that uh, in that period growing up um she was She was a phenomenally talented um, london r and b singer. It was Mm. quite, you know, she went into jazz later on, so she wasn't kind of in contention for pop stardom or rock stardom. She kind of signed off from that world. Um, But I think she should be, um, I think she's, um, she did keep on recording for a long time, but I don't think she was ever as well-remembered or as well-recognised as she ought to have been. I give that her image was was also so fantastic. uh, uh, I I I would have thought Nicone would have been more, Interested in her that he seems to have been. Uh, Dusty Springfield was amazing. She was the first uh, first pop star that I ever saw live. She was on uh, after a panto in uh, <laughs> pantomime in Liverpool uh, when, I, when I was about eight <laughs> wow. or something. Um, and so, wow. I, I, and, and in fact, she was not just not just a dazzling pop star, but she was also one of the most intelligent interpreters of um, American music. You know, whether it's yeah. um, Uh, whether it's uh, Brill Building or proper R&B or country soul. Dusty Springfield, was. um, she had that same talent that the Beatles had for kind of being a conduit for black American music towards the white uh, British market, which in turn kind of fed back to the white American market. Um, uh, Dusty Springfield, I think um, I could never get enough of. She's She was such an overwhelming... Talented person, she mm. should have had several, at least a chapter to herself in, uh, in Nick Cohn's uh, book for my for my money.
0: Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, you know, there's so much more we could talk about this book. You know, um, I love the when he talks about how he's been dreading writing the Beatles chapter. <laughs> he says, "What is there possibly left to say about them?" Which is hilarious coming from the late '60s, given the <laughs> you know volumes of literature we have uh, been wading through ever since And them. Yeah, Mark Lewis didn't didn't listen to that. <laughs> um And he calls the Who the last great fling of super pop. um. You know, this is when, you know, obviously he's 22, it's the end of days. um. And in, in the 2004 preface to this book, I've been accumulating various versions. He recalls the writing it was born of thwarted passion, trying to describe guts and flash and energy and speed, um, the energy and speed of his first love. So, yeah, it's still a fantastic book to read. And thanks, Paul, for bringing it in today. That's A Wop-Up, A Lube-Up by Nick Cohn current edition of it out, published by Vintage. So, Paul, do you have any more book recommendations? I know you've already told us loads um, as we've been going through the, this uh, um, episode. Well,
1: certainly authors. Um, um. Um, Simon Napier-Bell, who was, a, who was a pop manager in the 60s and beyond. You know, go, it goes from the early days of Mark Bolan through to, wham, George Michael and beyond. Um, he was very much in the absolute in the middle of um, the London pop business in its formative years. Uh, he even co-wrote uh, one of Dusty Springfield's um, uh, big songs, "You Don't Have to um, Say You Love Me." Um, oh yeah! He wrote a series of memoirs, uh, at least three that I can remember, uh, which I think are great reading. He's gossipy, you know. He was a total showbiz insider. Um, very interested in, in the. The, the influence of the drug subculture he often mm. kind of relates um, the timeline of music to the drugs that people were taking in the uh, in um, the music business at that time um, he's, he's I'd recommend any of um, Simon Napier Bell's books um, Andrew Le who was also pop manager of course uh, with the Rolling Stones and uh, Marianne Faithfull um, before Becoming um, quite a drug victim himself in the um, in the seventies, before his eventual recovery, I, I I got to know him in recent years quite well. He's a thoroughly fascinating man. Um, again, like Simon Napier Bell, um, great um, company, you know, uh, off the record, so to speak. Um, just to have lunch with him is um, to get a whole different take on the things that were going on <laughs> in the 19s. You know, the unrepeatable stuff that was going on in the 1960s. He's he's written at least two volumes of his memoirs, Stoned and uh, Two Stoned, which I would um, firmly uh, firmly recommend. Um, John Savage, whom you mentioned as well, uh, anything John does has uh, got to be has got to be great as well.
0: Brilliant. Um, I should add. Um, with Simon Apia Bell. Um, um, I'm coming to take you to lunch. The brilliantly titled <laughs> "I'm coming to take you to lunch." His book about Wham is brilliant, yeah. and I loved reading that when I was reconnecting with my early love of Wham. Um, when I was writing my book, it's really great, especially on them um, when they go to China. Really interesting. Um, and um, Black Vinyl, White Powder by Simon Napier Bell was the first uh, music book I ever reviewed oh. for Word magazine for a summer special in 2003 when I was still working for a terrible charity up a fire escape in Acton before you and Mark Ellen saved me and <laughs> brought <laughs> me into the Word office. <laughs> Um, oh, well, I love. Perhaps, I, I, perhaps the I gave you that
1: book to review then. Um,
0: I, do you know what? I think I'd read it and oh, suggested right. it, and you got quite excited because yep. you're like, "Yes, she could be my assistant now." She <laughs> she likes so, you know. Maybe maybe that was what was going on. But um, I reviewed that, and I also reviewed a teenage fan club best of album, uh-huh. and I've read. I remember your red pen marks very sweetly. Um, through my um early reviews, maybe or um, um, your and your very kind suggestions of maybe not using as many adverbs as uh I had been using. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, but Simon Napier Bell's books are good, and if anyone's interested in the Andrew Lou Golden books, um, I would also recommend listening to, um, the episode of Songbook with Vashti Bunyan where she talks oh, yeah, about uh, yes. who she's um still friends with, yeah. and um, and we talk about um. Marianne Faithful's nineteen nineties memoir, in that yeah, that, that's so, an um,
1: extraordinarily powerful um, autobiography. Marianne Faithful,
0: yeah, very much so, very much so. And um, if you haven't read Vashti's yet as well, that is an excellent book too. So, um, and do you have finally, Paul, a book song for us?
1: Yes, I do. Um, my choice uh, would be uh, "Up the Junction" by Squeeze. Brilliant. Which, um, if you trace it back, originates with um, um, a book written by uh, Nell Dunn. Um, her book, Up the Junction, was a collection of um, interrelated um, stories, vi- uh, uh, vignettes really, of life in working class Battersea around the end of the 1950s, beginning of the 60s. Nell Dunn herself was uh, quite a, a middle class uh, girl who lived over the river in Chelsea, but for for some reason she decided to spend some time working uh, in a factory over in Battersea and sharing the lives of these young uh, young, um, London women, um, going out to the pub with them, um, um, seeing what they did uh, in work and outside of work, and the enormously sympathetic and revealing portraits of a slice of life that's gone now. I mean, uh, they all Lived in terraced houses in Battersea, which, if they still exist, would probably cost <laughs> two million quid <laughs> or something. Uh, but it, it was it was a thoroughly ungentrified um, working class district at that uh, at that stage. Uh, Nell Dunn's um, book was made into a TV play by Ken Loach, I think, and also into a feature film, which uh, starred Dennis Waterman bizarrely. So I'm not positive. I think um, Christopher, who wrote Up the Junction for Squeeze may have had his starting point in either the film or the play, but um it all goes back to Nell Don's book, That's the point. And um Christopher's lyric for for the Squeeze song shares many of the same virtues actually as a as a, just as a as a depiction of um ordinary London life. It's um for my money it's one of the great London great London songs.
0: And I I remember you saying um well, we've discussed this song before. That the rhymes are really interesting in it. They don't quite rhyme. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's um. The, the, the first thing is that it's one of the it's one of these pub quiz answers in that uh, the title of the song doesn't actually appear until uh, uh, the final line of the song. Now oh, it's yeah. my assumption we are clearly up the junction or it is. Um, but the, the second thing is that the rhymes are always a little bit off. There's um, the something quite slapdash, assumption, and junction. Um, never thought it would happen for me and the girl from Clapham. Um, nothing exactly rhymes, but that gives the song so much of its conversational charm. Oh,
0: yeah. Um, Older and soldier. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. It's, also, um, it's also one of their greatest pieces of music, I think, as well. It's, it's, it's an absolutely perfect uh, uh, pop song from the lyrical and the musical point of view
0: brilliant that's a classic thank you paul we'll put that on the playlist which is uh getting more diverse and bonkers by the week (laughs) um thank you so much paul for being my guest today thank you for it being solely your fault that i still write about music nearly 20 years on now (laughs) (laughs) it is almost 20 years since i met you and the lovely men in in word magazine Uh saved me from my past life and (laughs) introduced me to this so thank you and thank you for your time today um And I'll see you soon, Hope.
1: Thank you for having having me along. It's been great.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Um, All the Songbook episodes from season one and season two so far are up now on Apple Podcasts and many other streaming services. Please like and subscribe because it helps get us known well and gets more people listening. And we'll see you next week. This has been a White Rabbit and Carmelite Studios production. Presented and written by Jude Rogers. Music by David Holmes. Episode producer Jake Alderson. Editor Dan Jones.